Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Thea Linarduzzi and with Stig Abel away, I am delighted to be joined this week by the one, the only, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, welcome. Hello, thank you for having me. How, um, how are you getting on with your summer reading? We were talking about that recently. Yeah, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't read any of my summer reading. We haven't been on holiday as often as I have. So What I've got is a long list and in fact, I'm thinking of adding to that list the book that we're going to talk about a bit later, Talking to Women. So I've got a long list and very little actual reading of it done. How about that? I think I think we need to excuse you for a week. Well, I'll, yeah. I'll You'll off. gladly take that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd like to be here. And rightly so, because coming up on the show this week, in the mid-1960s, the British novelist and playwright Nell Dunn set about recording conversations with her female friends, asking them questions such as, Can women be happy alone? And how much do you make things happen or let them happen to you? The result went on to become a seminal feminist text, Talking to Women. As Silver Press publishes a new edition of the book, Kate Webb talks to us about Nell Dunn talking to women. And we will be joined by Patricia J. Williams, who has written a truly eye-opening piece for the TLS about the role and lasting influence of eugenics in American society, from compulsory STD checks to forced government-endorsed sterilisation. Although centred on the progressive era of the late 1800s and the early 1900s, the line between history and the present political climate is troubled, to say the least. In some ways, Nell Dunn's book, Talking to Women, might look like a very 60s artefact. It was published in 1965, in between her short story collection Up the Junction and her novel Poor Cow, both of which explored the lives of working-class women in a way that had rarely been done before. Talking to Women is a series of interviews she did with nine of her friends, separately, over a bottle of wine. They were writers, artists, workers, wives, mothers. And while the book does chart shifts in society and changing attitudes, a lot of the questions are timeless and direct, about love, family, sex and death. And many of the problems and challenges these women faced over 50 years ago will still feel familiar today. We're delighted to be joined by Kate Webb, who has reviewed Talking to Women for us. Kate, many thanks for talking to us about Talking to Women. 
Can I start by asking you about Nell Dunn herself? She had an extraordinary career and an extraordinary life. Okay, yeah, so she was was born into an upper-middle-class life. Um, She was the daughter of a a knight. She was the granddaughter of an earl who was a gambler and lost a lot of money gambling, and he was known as the man who broke the bank at Monte Carlo. The man who the song was about? Exactly. I know the song. Um, I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. And quite a few of the women in the book that she interviews who are friends are also... There's a couple of other uh, heiresses who have fallen on hard times. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, equally there's a woman in the factory who she met when she was working there in Battersea Um, so there's quite a range of people from different classes but there's also a sense that the structures of class in Britain are shifting a lot and she's part of that move she leaves um, North London, Chelsea in uh, the end of the 50s and Mm -hmm. moves with her husband who went on to write Cathy um, Come Home Yeah. so between them they wrote three extremely important um, books about kind of working class people's lives that hadn't really been, hadn't had any light shed on them really. Not much and um, with Ken Loach who filmed both Cathy Come Home and then the adaptation that Nell Dunn did of her own short stories at the junction Mm -hmm. which she wrote about the women she met in Battersea when she moved there in 1959. But so so in a sense she was, I mean not in a sense she was clearly um, just escaping her her privileged uh, upbringing. She was, I think, she went to a convent school, and and her father never really thought she that it was particularly important for girls to be educated. No, but he also thought it was important for them to be individualists. It wasn't so oh, much right. that he didn't want her to be educated. He didn't care if she passed exams. Uh-huh. So, but he 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 really wanted her to be an individualist, perhaps in the way that upper class eccentricity is allowed right. to flower. Mm-hmm. Well, she certainly achieved that. She then. did. <laughs> But she's also, I mean, that move from North London, Chelsea, into um, Battersea, and Battersea then, of course, was one of the biggest working-class areas in London mm. outside of the East End, um, was something that was very much of its time. So it's not so much that she's an individual doing something strange. If you think about other women writers at the time, you've got people like Beryl Bainbridge, who came up from um, Liverpool, working-class background to Liverpool and moved to London, and um, wrote a book that came out a bit later called The Bottle Factory um, Outing, which was based on her work in factories, Mm. rather like Nell Dunn meets one of the women who she interviews here um, in a sweet factory in Battersea. So there's kind of opportunities for women. There was the chance that young women could get out and earn a living and make their own lives in some way. And you have that whole flood of young people coming into London. Mm-hmm. So she was. She was also because I know that sometimes she uh, people kind of say, oh, "Well, she was very upper class, and she was kind of pretending to be among the working class and sort of romanticizing." Or them, um, yeah, as, as though she was an anthropologist. Yeah, but actually, she was working in the factory and she was living there. She was very much part of that society, wasn't she? She was, and um, it's perhaps inevitable that some of those questions will be raised now mm. after three or four decades of people looking at the politics of class and the politics of representation, the politics of race and the politics of representation, yeah, sure. who has the right to speak for whom. But given that, I think, try not to look at it ahistorically, but look at mm. it at the time. As I said, there are a lot of people... It doesn't mean that Britain becomes a classless society, but it's a fascinating period. You know, a couple of years before she does these interviews, 1961, you have the Profumo affair, um, in which Mandy Rice Davis gets up in court um, and and makes that immortal line, well, he would, wouldn't he? Mm. Um, you have John Lennon talking, 
saying to the Queen in a Royal Variety performance, you can just rattle oh, your jewellery. Yes, These yeah. young, work, often working class, but young people coming in and having a voice which is articulating something that they know about society, but perhaps the powers that be hadn't really understood. Yeah, and they haven't been able to say it before. <laughs> no, they haven't been able to say it. Well, they haven't been able to say it in the way that they haven't been able to talk about sex in the way that they do very openly in this book, not least because, again, of just another couple of years earlier, 1960, you have the Lady Chatterley's trial, which is a mm -hmm. key moment in terms of censorship and what can be said regarding sex. So there's a big opening up at this period as well. Mm -hmm. The movement of class, but also 1961, you get the pill on the NHS. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, so it, what's so wonderful about this book is is the very way in which it's you know as as lucy said in her introduction these are interviews so it's people speaking in their own words about themselves about how they feel so i mean i know you've um you've prepared a few extracts so i wonder just so that we can get a sense of of how it how it works how how it, how it is to hear these voices sure so this is pauline Boti, who's the first woman in the book um uh, a 1960s pop artist who, like lots of women artists, kind of got lost but has been revived recently through not least the interest of Ali Smith mm. who wrote about her in her novel Autumn. And she's talking about how men respond to her as a woman with something to say for herself. So she says, Probably one of the reasons I married Clive was because he was really the first person to accept me quite as a human being, you know with a mind, and he accepted me intellectually, which men find very difficult. And then Neldon asks her, why? Men think of you as just a pretty girl, you mean? And Pauline Boti replies, no, they find it embarrassing when you... The thing is done in a way that isn't... It, it's as people speak, yeah, so there's a lot of interruption. Yeah. So men find it embarrassing when women start talking about... I've met so many men who get slightly embarrassed. They're a bit square, probably. If you, well, for instance, we know that there are lots of women who are intellectually cleverer than lots of men, but it's difficult for lots of men to ever accept this idea. And they often feel, well, anyway, I'm a man, and being a man is lots better than being a woman. So you can get from that extract the kind of sense of what it's like for women in social situations coming up, up against men. And you get this repeatedly in the book again and again. The way in which men either ignore women when they speak or find it impossible possible to credit that a woman would have something mm. to say for herself or any expertise uh, in any particular area absolutely yeah. and that that trickles through because again a recurring thing is with these women is a lack of confidence a feeling like that they're not good enough not able to perform not able to hold their own and Ali Smith makes that point in the introduction, which she does to this book, that, you know, it, it, as she says, it's almost comic that writers like Edna O'Brien, uh, artists like Pauline Boaty, Anne Quinn, the experimental writer who's also interviewed in the book, and others say things like, I'm not very good at talking, in the middle of these extraordinarily articulate, vivid, penetrating mm. interviews in the middle of the, those conversations, but also because they themselves have produced their own works of art or novels or biographies. And yet they consistently say things like they're not good at talking mm. or they find it difficult to find the right words in social situations. There's a lot of interesting debate about the nature of language and the feeling that there perhaps isn't a language available for these women to express what it is that they want to say. 
which of course, again, if you're thinking about literature, was the theme of something like Doris Lessing's novel, The Golden Notebook, which mm. was published a couple of years earlier. It also makes sense with Anne Quinn's work, who is, who's looking for all sorts of different ways to, to say things and articulate things in a, in, in, in a new way, really. Absolutely. The kind of idea of the experimental writer, mm. um, which is perhaps why somebody like Ali Smith has been interested in her. There's something interesting about class and politics and literary form going on as well, which, which doesn't... I would love to have, have had more of that, but the interviews aren't just about art or literature, they're about life. Can I ask you, I was going to say, you say she's a very skilled interviewer and in the bit that you just talked about, she's sort of, she's nudging Pauline Boaty on when she says something interesting. What kind of, because there's, there's a lot of kind of quite, they're big questions, aren't they, that she asks them. She doesn't just say, how are you feeling today? No, she asks them, uh, as you say, sort of profound questions about the nature of life um, in quite bald ways, uh, bald statements. Um, There's a brilliant do you choo- one. Are you free? Do you choose freedom? You know, think questions like that. Yeah. Do you choose uh, how you live or is it forced upon you? Which is a brilliant question, actually. Yes. And there's one where you say, she says, she says, uh, she asks them whether they live largely in the past, the present or the future. Mm-hmm. Really interesting question. It is. Do you feel that there's a kind of consensus among among them about what they expect from life that tells us anything about that particular time and place and culture, or are they all? Is it all? They all just completely different and individual. There is consensus to some degree, but inevitably, with nine women, uh, you're going to have different points of view. Yeah. So, um, the attitudes to men, for instance, you're going to get different points of view. But underlying that, so for instance, some women say they enjoy sex, they love sex, it's one of the most important things in their life and the most important things in a relationship. Others say, actually, they're really horrified of sex. And there's the sense that this is against the background of the 60s in which the pill has become available and there's free love and people are supposed to be having great mm. romantic relationships. I often think that thing about free love, though, it was f- freer for the blokes. Well, that <laughs> so uh, often uh, seemed to be not al- so good for women. It also imposed another pressure, another yeah. pressure to feel a certain well, way, it was, to live yeah, up it was to another of ideal. Out of, one, out of one set of expectations into another, It arguably. did, but again, a bit, I feel that's one of those things that we now have come to say yes. about mm. the yeah, 60s. Yeah, sure. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about reading the book is to, you know, we read it through the lens of now and there are all these things. One of the things that comes up in the book, again, that perhaps has changed are the number of women who make remarks about slightly Victorian fathers. Mm-hmm. There's not much about mothers. And it was Angela Carter, of course, who said, who started writing it about this time, that actually the target for women was not, as people had thought, the heavy patriarchal father, but actually the mother and that the real battle women were having in this period was the battle with their mothers, the constriction of their mothers' lives Mm -hmm. in the 1950s after the war, and that they were trying to break away from that. But I think, again, that's the sort of idea or recognition that we've come to a bit later and perhaps is not there at that time. Are they reading it as a social artefact, a historical artefact, as Lucy said, or are they reading it because it's telling them something about themselves now? I'm sort of struck by... Throughout, there seems to be this opposition between men and women, and it's it's very much how to be both rather than now. You might think of it as being we're in less of a context of how to be both, and it's more how to be everything or nothing. It's it's less binary. bipartite binary. Yes, it, that's true. I think in answer to the question, do we read it as women read it then, and why are we reading it now? 
we can't possibly read it as they read it then. And in fact, it's a fascinating idea. It would be wonderful yeah. <laughs> to talk. I know Sheila Rowbottom, who I thought about a lot, the social historian, yeah. read this and it had a big impact on it. It'd be fascinating to talk to people who read it then and mm. see what they made of the book and why it mattered so much to mm. them then. I think now it, it is a great social document. It's one of the most vivid portraits of the 1960s. And it also might be making it sound rather worthy. It, it, it's very, there's a lot of comedy in it. There's a lot of riot in it, in the way when women get together to start talking. It's an incredibly vivid and alive mm. book in the way that some of the writing in interviews, I think I mentioned at the beginning, interviews is an interesting literary mm. form. Mm, yeah. And people like Studs Terkel and I, I think uh, Nell Dern have really mastered it in bringing it alive. But I think it also poses for today really interesting questions. It, it, challenged, it challenged me when I was reading it today. Mm. So and you, you, you weren't just looking at, on it as a, oh, the, the, as a, a historical document? document Not at document. all. Yeah, it's exactly. alive. Yeah. It's absolutely yeah. alive. And all of the questions are so pertinent. We might mm. frame them in different ways. One of the most obvious things is that many of the debates come in terms of morals. They speak in terms of morals and ethos mm. about a lot of questions that we now would frame in terms of politics because there has been a politics and a political debate about it. Right. But they're talking about the same thing. Yeah. You mean whether it's kind of, I don't know, um, raising children or abortion or euthanasia or that, that kind of thing that we would talk about it as a sort of social or political thing but they're talking about it as a personal and moral thing. Yes, I think I think partly that but also that the sense that the ground in the 60s is really moving under their feet mm. <laughs> and that they have to keep experimenting and improvising and in some ways they some of them describe how tiring it is one of them talks about uh, how as a pioneer she feels she's a pioneer you don't get any respect or credit for it and it's difficult yeah nell dunn at one point says um choosing is awfully tiring mm. isn't she? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny being out there <laughs> all the time exactly yes um but again that's on the edge which would be a funny comment now but it's on the edge of a feeling that these women are just beginning to face questions that their mothers and their grandmothers certainly mm. did not face. Mm. Because although they can earn livings, they can perhaps go into the factories or they can go into some other places, it's still a very precarious world. Mm. And most of the feelings about men, uh, are the antipathy towards men is often tied up with the sense that they can be abandoned. That, that, that men, when men abandon them, it's not just their emotional or sexual life that falls apart, it's their whole life that mm. will about sort of the social existence and material yes <laughs> primarily yes, material yeah, you know and, and that happens shockingly early on i mean perhaps that's something that, that has changed from from then to now in that i think they they suggest that the prime of life is when you're 17 and by the time oh, you reach yeah. 37 you're that's i was it, horrified really. by that bit yeah you're done for <laughs> um, it's very early to have the prime of your do you think they mean just looks they mean looks, but they mean attractiveness. And attractiveness, yeah, of yeah. course, means something much bigger than it means now because it means yeah. your value on the market. Mm. And that is, that you know, th their whole sense of worth is tied up with, and not just worth, but actually existential viability mm. is tied up with their ability to attract a mate. Uh, this is even in the head of people like Edna O'Brien, who are already a sort of successful novelist and presumably could look after herself but it's it's all there in in their heads mm. um i'm afraid we haven't got time to talk about much more that would we could we just could sit here all, and do this for day. hours couldn't we but i just wanted to ask if you think it's important as a slice of social history or as feminism or as biography or as all of those all of or, those it yeah. sounds like <laughs> i think it's really important as 
I think, as I said, that she, after this, she did an, uh, a following on from the questions about women being quite isolated. She did a really interesting book about women and men living in different ways in communes mm. um, and open marriages. And then she did a book about grandmothers. And I think I really do believe that together it's an exceedingly important document of women's lives mm. in the second half of the 20th century. It's also just a brilliant, lively read. I mean, it would be a great summer book if that's what people are looking mm. for. But it says so much to a new generation of p women who are thinking once again about these questions. Yeah. Um, well, that's another one that we should all be adding to our list if we haven't already read it. Thank you very much. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. When the US House Speaker Paul Ryan recently urged higher birth rates in America as a way of boosting the economy, just weeks after backing drastic cuts to legal immigration rates, and when Donald Trump described all Mexicans as criminals, and specifically rapists, a risk to American women and children, and when it transpired that the US Justice Department had for some time been not only deporting but criminalising asylum seekers merely for trying to get into the US and taking children away from their families, detaining them in crowded cages and warehouses, one might have been forgiven for seeing these actions as evidence of a recent twist in American affairs. One might have seen it as a dark spot on a country that has historically not only welcomed immigrants, but which was supposedly founded on the notion that all men, and that is admittedly men, are created equal. After all, as Patricia Williams points out in a gut-wrenching essay in this week's paper, we Americans live in the present tense. Everything is sui generis, everything popped up overnight by virtue of individual choice and choice alone. But the divisive policies towards immigrants, the stateless or the poor that we are currently seeing, are characteristic of a particular strain of national concern, what Williams calls an overtly eugenic populism, which has a deep history stretching back, as she says, to the days when slave auctions saw family relation rendered irrelevant as children were snatched from their mothers and sold as chattel. 
Not to mention that the women and men were stripped for display, their genitals publicly inspected for signs of disease, their personalities rated for docility and passive obedience. The progressive era is the initial focus in Williams's essay, a not-so-long-ago time when the working class and the very poor were treated as inherently, genetically dependent on state resources, destined for eternal pauperism. These people were called feeble-minded, imbeciles, dangerous, because of supposedly innate traits passed down just like the colour of their eyes. They became, says Williams, ciphers for contagion, carriers of corruption and therefore in need of confinement. Whole families could be written off in this way, and thus was enforced sterilisation justified. Here to tell us more is Patricia Williams. So, Patricia, your piece centres on the so-called progressive era, this period characterised by this heady blend of politics, pseudoscience and economic concerns, all of which accumulated in this full-scale national plan, the grandiosely named American plan to stamp out all immorality. Its motivation was clearly fear, I mean, what was the basis of that fear? How did it how did it manifest? The fear, I think, was of migration, of miscegenation, stemming principally from two populations, those coming from abroad, particularly Irish immigrants and immigrants from Southern Europe. In addition, I think there was the still reverberating trauma of slavery, so a great deal of this anxiety was focused on race mixing with African Americans, former slaves who once emancipated were the object of a great deal of, I think, fear. And this resulted in a kind of biologized untouchability focused on the poor, on those who were phenotypically different, and those who didn't speak conventional American English of the time literally taking morality and making morality a biological trait, a heritable trait. And this was the beginning of the American eugenics movement and a plan instantiated in a series of laws called the American Plan to segregate, to detain, and ultimately to sterilize those classes deemed incorrigibly immoral or criminal. And this this idea of incorrigibility, it really seems to have captured the imagination. Pauperism, you you say, was was seen as being genetic. Yes, and a campaign began throughout the United States of putting social hygiene (laughs) agents who would walk the streets looking for women who were single, who seemed to be idle, who were in the company of men who were not their husbands, unaccompanied young women who were coming from rural areas, perhaps, um, to cities looking for work, uh, particularly just before World War I. Uh, as World War I was uh, recruiting soldiers and they were put on army bases in various parts around the co- various locations around the country, the social hygiene movement uh, gained a great deal of traction in terms of policing not the soldiers' behavior as much as young women's behavior in the localities where these army bases were located. And that was really the, the, the one, one of the, the large forces for patrolling with righteous indignation. <laughs> was it that they were worried that these uh, sort of loose women who may or may not have been wandering around the streets, were they, they were worried that they were going to meet the soldiers? I think there were two worries. One was of 
sexually contracted venereal disease. The other was of the so-called white slavery system. That was mentioned a great deal in the media at the time. It was ultimately a, an exaggerated fear in terms of the way in which the law focused on venereal diseases, locally transmitted venereal diseases, as, again, embodied as a kind of contagion, not focused on the, on the on bacterium or the virus per se, but upon certain entire classes of human beings, that they embodied the contagion, that they were the infestation, they were the infection. The largest numbers of people who suffered under this were very poor single women, were Irish immigrant women, and black women. And so, so how was the this American plan, how was it sort of implemented in day-to-day America? How was it experienced by the average incorrigible? Well, one of... <laughs> In inverted commas, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the books that um, I reviewed in this this essay for for the supplement was the story of one Nina McCall, uh, who was a young woman from a small town in rural Michigan who happened to be going to the post office one day unaccompanied and captured the attention of one of the enforcers, the venereal police, so to speak, and was told to report to the local doctor to be inspected for venereal disease because that's how it was done. And the standard for this was quite low in almost all of the implementations, state implementations of these sorts of social hygiene laws, which was not simply that you were infected, but that you were suspected, reasonably suspected of being infectious. And presumably she had no choice. She she had to go for that test because had she not gone for that test, they would have... The state laws would allow her to be... arrested in fact she was arrested um and because she resisted at various points i'm not surprised but and many it... women resisted and they were they were they, they had warrants out for them and they were um, brought in and then they were detained uh, and they were detained indefinitely because this was a quite haphazard op- operation in, in in many ways so that nina mccall for example was suspected of having syphilis ended up being treated for gonorrhea although it was never <laughs> entirely clear that she had either and the treatments involved injections of mercury and arsenic and other poisons. They made many, sickened many, many women and, and left them with bodily disfigurements um, for life. And the, the, the difference with Nina McCall, you say she was one of many, one of thousands yeah. Yeah. Um, across the country who were subjected to this kind of treatment. The difference is that she brought a case yes. against the U.S. government. Yes. Against the state government, actually. Against the state government. Yeah, because this, although it was a federal policy, subsidized by the federal policy, and, and model laws uh, came out under the advice of the American Eugenics Records Office in Cold Spring Harbor, New York, which was a private organization, but funded by Rockefeller in particular, funded by a number of private entrepreneurs, in conjunction with the United States promoting this as federal policy, it was nevertheless implemented on a state level. So she sued the state of Michigan, and she was fortunate to be able to have the standing to sue. First of all, she was not black. (laughs) And second of all, she aligned herself with a series of relatively well-positioned social reformers of the time who took up her case and made it exemplary. I'm just interested in the, even in a purely legal sense, that the right of the, the the sort of person going around looking for people who look as though they might have venereal disease trumps her right to go to the post office on her own. It wasn't illegal for her to go to the post office, was it? No. But their right trumped hers just because... It was viewed as a public health, or it was the emerging uh, notion of public health at that time that 
contagion was enough of an emergency that it trumped certain due process interests and trumped certain criminal protections of search, seizure, and so forth. And so the body was literally taken off the streets to be inspected, uh, to be treated against uh, one's will. Again, it was also a time when certain of these populations did not have rights that were bound to be respected. Again, this is particularly true of minority women, but it extended certainly to a, uh, what was perceived as a servant class. I'm wondering as well, um, so the, the progressive era is, is probably in the in the public imagination is best remembered as, as the time of prohibition, even though that, that sort of came in towards the end of the, the 1920s and to yeah. 1933. But I'm wondering, were, were women at the forefront of this eugenics movement, of this kind of compulsory searching, uh, as they were with prohibition? Were women were women activists at the, the kind of leading that, that call for, for purity and for uh, yeah. hygiene? Yes, and the American eugenics movement, the Eugenics Records Office actually deployed women, white women, to protect the race. They were the embodiment of all that was good about the American experiment. And so they issued certificates of Nordic purity, and there were fitter family contests and better baby contests that were financed, again, by a number of entrepreneurs, not just Rockefeller, but... John Harvey Kellogg, who was the inventor of the cornflake, <laughs> mm. and who um, uh, believed in regulating sexual practice only for the benefit uh, and betterment of racial purity, and was a, an advocate of suppressing all masturbatory practices. Did the did the kind of the free wheeling, free loving feminist influence nineteen sixties when they came around? Did did that represent much of a change, or did it did it end did it end up only sort of liberating a section of the, the population, namely well, the whites? Well, I should say that actually that women and white women were at the forefront representationally of the eugenics movement in the United States going back to the progressive movement and also going back to anti-miscegenation laws of, of protecting white women from the ravages of imaginary hordes of black slaves revolting. <laughs> this is a long-term line of concern in the United States. There were also women reformers on the other side, and certainly the American eugenics movement went so far in this kind of patrolling that in New York City, I believe it was, Oscar Hammerstein's wife was picked up under these laws. <laughs> Just and probably because she went to the post office or <laughs> something exactly. similar. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, well, she, I think she was listening to music, which at the time was considered scandalous. And uh, oh. she went to some music hall, perhaps. I can't remember the precise facts, but it was... Yeah. Um, but but that did create a scandal, and it create and and so there were women on the other side, white women and women in in social in positions of social power, um, who uh, who were at the forefront of resisting this as well. When you get to the 1960s, as you mentioned, it this kind of social patrol lasted until the 1960s, and within this literature, you find mention of Andrea Dworkin actually mm. uh, the feminist anti-pornographer who became much more famous during the 1970s, perhaps, or the late 1960s or 1970s, she was picked up <laughs> under these laws while protesting and subjected to an examination for um, STDs. It was done in a way that really hadn't changed since the early 1900s with large metal specula that actually 
bruised her and injured her so badly that she bled for days and days thereafter. And uh, as she recounts in, in her memoirs, it destroyed her insides, and it was one of the most humiliating times of her life. She was just a student at that time, mm-hmm. uh, but the trauma endured and uh, informed in, in much of her passion uh, throughout her life. And echoed so precisely the experience of, of Nina McCall so, so long ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's extraordinary that that was happening in the 60s because, as you say in the piece, the awful and logical extension of the American plan and of eugenics was as, was what the Nazis were doing in World War Two was the yeah. was the final solution. Yeah. And so that so, but clearly, as you say, the, the the patrols kind of persisted until the 60s. Do you think there is any? I I read somewhere, and this this may be wrong, that um, that that these kind of ideas have sort of slightly gone underground and moved on to things like psychometric testing and intelligence testing and talking about the heritability of intelligence and that kind of thing. Do you think that well, there's anything on. in that? This was certainly developed during that period. This was a period in which Charles Davenport, who was one of the founders of the uh, eugenics records uh, department at at Cold Spring, Mm. deployed Mendelian biological notions of simple traits, translating very directly in the same way that pea shoots might. Yeah, Um, or things like eye color and... Yes. But even simpler than that, Yes, exactly. And applying it to intelligence, a much more complex phenomena. And IQ tests were certainly part of this. They were developed. The social movement uh, looked at uh, phenotype. It looked at skull size. It looked at very crude... IQ tests mm. that were so culturally based that were really class designators, not intelligence. And this, again, the social hygiene movement was certainly the, was copied by the uh, National Socialists in Germany. When you mentioned the Nazis, they actually used a United States case called Carrie Buck uh, versus Bell, in which a young woman was actually shown not to be mentally disabled, not to be, quote, feeble minded. Um, she was sterilized against her will, and our Supreme Court Justice Oliver Rundle Holmes said, three generations of imbeciles is enough. It's a very famous line from that, mm. <laughs> from that Supreme Court case. And at Nuremberg, that line and that case was cited as a defense by Nazi doctors. So there was a great deal of cross-pollination in terms of the eugenics movement, the social hygiene laws in Germany, which were again patterned on the social hygiene, the earlier social hygiene laws here from, in the United States. That's the very sad connection. Mm-hmm. And that, well, that brings us directly to the politics. You, you cite a famous letter at one point by um, the biologist uh, Louis Agassiz, to, um, written to a deputy of President Lincoln's, I think it was, in which he bemoans the idea that the manly American population should be corrupted by mixing um, with other bloods. And there's also that famous letter from Theodore Roosevelt to Charles Davenport, uh, who you just mentioned there, he, the founder of the American Breeders Association, mm-hmm. in which um, Roosevelt says, society has no business to permit degenerates to reproduce their kind. I'm wondering if this belief in eugenics, this solid belief, transcended the political divide or or is it, as this might suggest, something that is especially linked with the right wing uh, and the Republican uh, Party? Oh, I don't think that it is exclusive to a particular party in the United States. We have much, much too long a, a history of not just conscious devotion to the notion of anti-miscegenation, which again began in slavery, um, and it was never, it, it was a notion of protecting white womanhood, even as white men were permitted to breed their slaves, as was perhaps the most famous example being Sally Hemings, <coughs> to breed their slaves in order to create more property to be sold. 
so it was the the actual race mixing was practiced widely as a form of inventory and product production during the times when human beings were bought and sold and uh, the in, the increase of slaves made a man wealthy. So I think that, that this is what we're actually dealing with is something which is a traumatic re- reiteration intergenerationally in which certain people were deemed family and pure family and other people who were actually the half-brothers and sisters but deemed property. <laughs> So very strict psychic boundaries grew up within the United States that I think are, you know, untouchability affects many societies around the world, but I think that this is a peculiar form of untouchability based on that particular history. And so we have in our country not just race prejudice, but a kind of untouchability that extends to every neighborhood in the United States in terms of just geographic segregation. Our history of segregation, of inner cities and suburbs, of not just divisions by class, but by race and by ethnicity, I think is is very much part of that mindset that, again, crosses every sort of party. And so in a sense, and, and on a final note, I suppose, the American plan is is still in action. You, you point out at the end of your piece that all of the laws that underpinned the plan remain on the books. That's pointed out in, in, in the Trials of Nina McCall, the book. It ends on that note, yes. <laughs> many, many of these, when one goes state by state, are still nobody ever is bothered to revoke them. Chilling um, thought. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Patricia Williams, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That is the rather sombre note on which we'll have to leave it for this week. All that remains is for us to thank Patricia Williams and Kate Webb for joining us and for me to encourage you to buy a copy of the paper so you can read in full the pieces we have merely touched on here as well as Benjamin Markovitz on the week when Trump came to Britain, Novichok struck again, the temperatures soared, and football did not come home. Clive Stafford-Smith on questionable intelligence and tarnished testimonies in Guantanamo Bay, the Royal Academy from Joshua Reynolds to Grayson Perry, jihadi bloopers, and a great deal more. Next week, Lucy and I will be back, but for now, from us both, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.